freeze, wait, reanimate. Freeze, wait, and reanimate. That's the marketing pitch of a company located in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a company called Alcor. Have you heard of a company called Alcor? Well, you're about to. I read about Alcor uh, in an article recently titled, Scottsdale Cryonics Facility, the home of Ted Williams' head, hopes frozen dead people will live again. Alcor. I'm not making this up. You can look it up. Things get a little slow in the next few minutes. Alcor. Dot org. Just thought I'd let you know that. Alcor is where 193 people have been cryonically preserved in the hope that their death will not be permanent, that, that, that one day medical technology will cure death. So, so, in the meantime, when you die, you can be stored in one of Alcor's thermos-like tanks in the hopes of a future body regenerated from your DNA. Alcor. Freeze, wait, reanimate. And each tank holds liquid nitrogen to keep the body at a, at a chilly temperature of minus 320 degrees. 1,400 living members have made legal arrangements and have shelled out the $200,000 uh, for this, for this resuscitation strategy. <laughs> Freeze, wait, reanimate. It's just a catchy jingle. I can't help but keep saying it over and over again. Freeze, wait, reanimate. Those marketing folks. Few demographics facts. 75% uh, of those frozen are male uh, who, have been, who have requested being reattached to 25-year-old bodies. Uh, also, there's 90 pets, cats, dogs, a turtle, and one chinchilla. I am not making this up. They're being preserved in sub-zero temps in the prospects of one day being returned to life. Uh, and by the way, one other trivial fact here. Uh, former major leaguer Ted Williams is in cryogenic freeze. So there. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to consider what lengths people will go to uh, to stay alive. I mean, and on the one hand... I identify with passion for life, absolutely. But, but, but on the other hand, is it really worth $200,000 to purchase a life that, that you know, may or may not exist 500 years from now? I mean, what would, if, it, if, if it worked, what would life be 500 years from now? Who would I know? Who would want to know me with, uh, with a 500-year-old face? I just don't get that. You see the assumptions here? Well, I have come here to save you all some money. 
You're welcome. Instead of the freeze, wait, reanimate plan, I want to talk about another plan. It's called the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ plan. It's called the Christ died, Christ was raised, Christ will appear plan. It's called the perishable to imperishable by resurrection power plan. It's not a resuscitation. It's resurrection. Would you happen to be interested in that plan? Would you say amen? Paul says in Romans 8, 10 and 11, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's the plan. The plan is 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a metaphor for death. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That's the plan. And I want to talk to you about this plan as we conclude our series on the body. We have been in a series on human embodiment. And today I want us to consider the future body. The resurrected body. And so here's the big idea I want to pitch here. Here it is. One day, one day called the day, the resurrected Christ will resurrect your body by the power of his Holy Spirit. So then stand firm. That's the plan. One day, one day your body will be animated, dominated, and liberated by the Holy Spirit of Christ, just like Christ. So then stand firm. Stand firm. That is the plan, church family. Now what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about Jesus' resurrected body first. This is where we're going. And then we'll talk about our resurrected body. And then I'll talk about what that means for today. Jesus' resurrected body, our resurrected bodies, and what that means for us today. That's where we're going. So let's talk about Jesus' resurrected body. Meet me in your Bibles. To Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. I, I, by the way, I've tagged this message, the future body, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And any conversation about the future body has to start with Christ's resurrected body because that's where Paul begins. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, and then to the Twelve. So so the gospel which Paul speaks about is a gospel that is fact-based. People actually saw the risen Christ. And it's the gospel. The gospel begins with the word Christ. Jesus is the subject. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ appeared. It's about what Christ is doing. And so the gospel is not just a what the gospel is, but what the gospel does. And don't read verses 1 and 2 too quickly. Because Paul says it is the gospel by which you stand. So the gospel to the Corinthians, it does something to them. It enables you to stand. The gospel is the bedrock upon which to build your life. It is sturdy. It is immovable. It is incorruptible. When the currents of our culture threaten to sweep us away, the gospel is the one fixed anchor point. When disease rushes over you like wildfire, the gospel is incombustible. When political waves threaten to undo us, the gospel is unsinkable. When ethnic strife threatens us as a nation, this gospel speaks of a secure kingdom composed from people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language. When you feel crushed from news you do not want to hear, whether it's cancer or a heart attack, or an accident, or it's inoperable. This gospel promises everlasting life. This gospel steadies us in the storms of sickness, the storms of political instability, the storms of economic uncertainty, the storms of unemployment, and the storms of exhaustion. And this gospel which you received and believed, that's past tense, is the gospel, Paul says, by which you are being saved. That's present tense. So the gospel is presently saving us. So the gospel's not a train ticket to the life to come to be punched and then just tucked away in my Bible so now I can get on with whatever is next on my checklist. No, 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 no. The gospel is about an all-powerful king who is alive and at work in us rescuing us moment by moment and day by day. Notice Paul says, I would remind you, brothers. We need reminders because we suffer from doctrinal amnesia, identity amnesia, eternity amnesia. We need to be reminded from what the culture is inflicting upon us. Every day, Paul says, this living king is producing supernatural character traits he's saving me he's saving me from selfishness he's saving me from apathy from indifference from self-centeredness he's saving me from myself the gospel that saves is the gospel by which jesus becomes larger and larger and i become smaller and smaller and i'm okay with that because john the baptist said he must become greater and i must become lesser 
There's a new sheriff in town. And he's making all things new. That's what the gospel's doing. And 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples in a body. And he gave them convincing evidence, testimony that he was still alive. For instance, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus' resurrected body had a conversation with two disciples on the path to a little town called Emmaus. Several miles, he walked with them, he had a conversation with them, he taught them, he asked them questions, and they conversed back and forth, and he entered their home as a guest and broke bread and ate. The only reason why they didn't recognize that it was Jesus because the Scripture says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Otherwise, he looked like a regular, ordinary guy. I mean, and, 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 and he walked on the Emmaus. He didn't glide across the Emmaus Road. He wasn't translucent. He had a body. You will have a body. That's Luke 24. In John chapter 20, when the resurrected Christ met his disciples, why, that morning he had started a fire. He cooked fish. He cooked egg men bread. He made breakfast for the disciples. He wasn't glowing or emanating radioactive illumination. He didn't have a halo. He had a body, a body that could be touched and held, and he consumed food. At the same time, John tells us his body was structured in such a way that allowed Jesus' molecules to pass through Solid materials are suddenly become visible or invisible as through locked doors. John tells us that. I like how N.T. Wright describes Christ's resurrection body. He uses the word transphysical. So it's at home in both realms, both the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And my point is that when you read the Bible and its account of Jesus' resurrected body, you kind of get a glimpse, a glimpse of what our future bodies will be like. So I'll say it again. Your future body will be a resurrected body, animated, dominated, and liberated by the Holy Spirit of Christ, just like Christ. John wrote in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3, 2. I can't wait for that day. How about you? Well, you may be thinking, well, Pastor... I mean, the Apostle John says we'll be like him, but I have questions, Pastor. I mean, like I wear glasses, or I have contacts, or I need orthotics, or I, I, I get allergies. How's that going to work in the life to come? <laughs> well, that's not the first time someone has asked a question like that. In fact, if you glance down at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, the Corinthians asked that question. But someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? And 
with what kind of body do they come? Paul was asked that question by the Corinthians. Now, I'm not going to answer completely the way Paul answered the Corinthians. Because the Corinthians, when they asked the question, they kind of had some snark to their tone. And that's why in verse 36, Paul says, You foolish person! I won't say that to any of you. But I will say what Paul said in the back half of that verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 36 says, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So, so in other words, Paul is saying, uh, okay, I, I understand your concerns about orthotics and contact lenses and, and so on and so forth, but, you, 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 you know, just, just by very asking, by the very nature of the question, you, you, you're still not getting the idea here. See, we're not talking about resuscitation. We're talking about resurrection. And so our present bodies are like seeds of corn or some other grain, seeds with dormant life in them. Our resurrection bodies will be like the living, growing stalks of corn that are produced from them. And so you know, when a farmer plants, the farmers don't plant the corn stalks. The farmers plant the seeds. And then, I mean, then life does its work, right? Well, our resurrected bodies will be like the living, growing stalks. And, and so both the seed and the stalk are the same stuff of corn. They have the same nature, the same genetic code. Yet the body of the plant is quite different from the body of its seed. So we will be the same persons but different bodies. And your seed body right now, as it is right now, your seed body cannot withstand the atmosphere of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ can't. It's perishable. It's dishonorable. It's weak. It's natural. It's not. Our physical seed bodies are incapable of holding the pure, holy, 100% proof love of Jesus Christ. But your resurrection body, your stock body, Paul says is imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. Your seed body is, is animated by oxygen and water and food and nutrition and rest. Your stock body is animated and dominated and sustained by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a body. When Jesus ate with his disciples there in John's gospel, he didn't eat because he needed food to consume. He, he ate to show them that he was a body. He was real. His resurrection body was animated and sustained by the Holy Spirit, and so will yours too. You see, the key difference is that in our resurrected bodies, we will live in the presence of Christ and apart from the presence of sin. It's that simple. It, it's that simple, but it's profound. Think about a world where there's no evil, no Satan, no rebellion, no darkness, no regrets, no corruption, no sin. I mean, why is life so hard if not because of our sinful, broken, fallen world? And that brokenness also exists in me. But in the new heavens and the new earth, in the constant presence of Jesus and by the power of His Holy Spirit, 
the same Holy Spirit in him will animate us. Can you imagine living in the fullness of Jesus' love? Can you envision life of joy and peace? Can you visualize a world with no evil, no violence, no wars, no shootings, no assassinations, no racism, no poverty? Can you picture a world where we look out for one another and serve one another and spur one another on toward love and good deeds? Oh, that's a world where the deepest longings of your heart come true. Listen, you ask, you ask any maturing believer and he or she will tell you that what he or she longs for most is to be a God pleaser. They'll say, I want to give God glory. I want to make God smile. Maturing Christians hunger to worship God publicly and privately. And to, to this passion, to this passion, Jesus says, you hang on. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, what you've longed for most in this life will finally come true in the life to come. You will have a glorified body with glorified abilities to worship and praise God with no limitations whatsoever. You'll have flawless motives, infinite energy, and unlimited time to give to God. And here's the deal. You will be surrounded by millions and millions of other believers who who share your white-hot passion for Jesus Christ. We will serve God forever. Amen? And then in, in our resurrected bodies, we will reign with God forever. What's that word reign mean? It means to reign. <laughs> Revelation 22.5, they will reign forever and ever. The word means to rule or to govern, which is what God originally created us to do. But when we rebelled against him, havoc was wreaked and life was a wreck. But in the supernatural splendor of the new heavens and the new earth, in resurrected bodies, servant leaders will govern with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3, don't you know that someday we Christians are going to judge the world? Don't you realize that we Christians will judge angels? Believers don't become angels at death. We will judge angels. This is not New Age mysticism. It's an objective reality where God, our Heavenly Father, shares the management responsibilities of the new heavens and the new earth with His Spirit-animated children. Oh, and, and, Christ's family of believers in the new heavens and the new earth will not be monoethnic rather multi-ethnic from every tongue and tribe and nation and people group from Ecuador and the Dominican and Haiti and Peru and Asia and Africa and Anglo and First Nations. Jarvis Williams in his excellent book Redemptive Kingdom Diversity writes, in Christ Jews and Gentiles are transformed into a new multi-ethnic community filled with many diverse ethnic communities. And this community does not lose the ethnic distinctions possessed by the diverse ethnic groups that formed us. This new in Christ community fulfills the entire word of God by loving one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And... Revelation 22.4 says, they, the, the multi-ethnic community, will see his face. In the new heavens and the new earth, 
The glory of God in the face of Jesus will be an everyday experience. We will walk every day in the light of his presence. I'm hungry for heaven, aren't you? Now, why would God do this? Why would he do this? Love is why God does this. Behold, 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. That's what we are. We who have been rescued from the penalty of sin are being rescued from the power of sin and one day will be rescued from the presence of sin. Hmm. And someone might ask, well, pastor, but what happens at death itself? I mean, what, what happens when I actually die? What, what happens to me then? I mean, my best answer is Jesus. Jesus. When your perishable body perishes, you will reside in a place Jesus called paradise. That's Luke 23, 42 to 43. Thief on the cross, getting ready to expire from this life. Saw Jesus and, and repented. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Is that, if that's not salvation by grace, I don't know what is. Paradise. What is that? Paradise is a word that describes the, a royal king's garden park. It's a place of beauty, a place of rest, a place of bliss, a place of restoration. It's in the very presence of Jesus. Paul echoed this in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and to be with the Lord is to be where the Lord is in the heavenly realm, not in a galaxy far, far away. He's in an unseen realm. Paul said in Colossians 3, 3, you died and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. And when Christ appears, you will appear. So what I'm saying is, is that paradise is a rest stop, not the final state. See, the scripture speaks of the final state when Jesus Christ, our emperor, will one day appear. That's 1 Corinthians 15. 51 Paul says behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed now Paul spoke those words to Corinthians residents of Corinth which was a Roman colony and the point of a colony is to extend the influence of the emperor Caesar and frequently Caesar would make imperial visits to a colony of his empire and loyal citizens would get ready for his arrival and on the day of Caesar's appearing the citizens would go outside the city go outside the gates to greet their emperor and then they would converge outside the city, and then they'd all meet the king and then return to the city for a celebration of his victorious rule because the king's arrival changes everything. And what Paul is saying is that one day, called the day, the trumpet will sound, 
and the world's true emperor, Jesus Christ, will appear. And in a flash, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. And those of us who are alive at his appearing will also be changed. One way or another, believers are going to be changed. And we will meet him outside the city gates. And we will all return to in our imperishable, immortal bodies to an imperishable, immortal earth. So God's ultimate plan is not to whisk us off to a galaxy far, far away in a realm made for him. No, his ultimate plan is to come down and to live in the realm he is remaking for us. And when we put on the garments of imperishable immortality, it won't be gradual. There won't be a thawing from liquid nitrogen. It's going to be instantaneous. And when that happens, we will not only celebrate, but we will taunt death, which is what the apostle does at the conclusion of 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You ain't so bad, death. Now, church, this is spectacular news. Nobody else has this news. Nobody. No other faith has this. None. Only Christianity can claim that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. And only Christianity can claim that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day transform our lowly bodies to the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. I want to go to heaven, don't you? Jesus is going to bring heaven down in the new heavens and the new earth. Immortal bodies immortal earth worshiping and serving the immortal christ well now what what do i do in the meantime that's question three right well paul says so it's the very last verse in first corinthians 15 therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You be immovable in the gospel, and you be abounding in the gospel. You be fixed and you be flourishing in the Lord's work. Listen to me, listen to me. Nothing we ever do for Christ will go, go to waste. No, no. You be firm in the gospel because the tomb is empty. The apostles are telling the truth. Jesus is alive, and one day life will swallow death. It's true. And also that means asking yourself, preaching to yourself every day. Every day we need to be preaching to ourselves. And so here, here's what I mean by that. Every day am I preaching to myself that this world is not my home. Am I doing that every day? Every day am I preaching to myself that, that my life is lived before an audience of one and there's only one person whose approval truly counts. Every day I need to be preaching to myself that, that my ultimate home is the new heavens and the new earth. And that this place is not my final destination. It's preparation for my final destination. I need to be preaching that 
And let me just really get personal here for just a minute. We need to put it this way. Based on this chapter, do you have a plan for your last day on earth? few years ago I met a saintly woman named Elsa Songbush she's good friends with Al and um, Marie Rayberg from our church she'd been in the hospital and Al and Marie were there and they asked me if I'd come and pray with them pray for her so I did yes of course so I went to her hospital room and Al and Marie were there I walked in the room and I saw Elsa I'd never met her before I saw Elsa she was sitting up in her bed she was looking out the hospital window. I said, Elsa, how are you doing? And Elsa said something I'll never forget. She said, well, I'm just waiting for the angels to come and take me home. Yeah. See, she had a plan. And that plan was watch and wait. TV off, Bible open. And she said it with a smile on her face. She said it with anticipation. She said it with joy. She said it expectantly. I mean, she was ready to see Christ. I only knew her for a few minutes. But man, in that short time, she taught me how to die. The way you face your death is to be certain about the source of your life. And I prayed with her. I ended up doing her service because later that night, she died. She had a plan. Stephanie Wetzel had a plan. Her last day of death. Mary and Jack, her parents. What parents should have to watch their child pass? But there we were. In that room. And the plan was pray and read scripture and weep and then pray and read scripture and then weep and thank God. That was the plan. And we just walked her right into the arms of Jesus later that night. That's a plan. Augustine. Augustine of Hippo. 1,500 years ago. A bishop. Massively influential in the history of the church. His last week of life. He had large sheets of paper in which the Psalms were written. So that as he was laying there in his deathbed, he could read those psalms and meditate upon them and pray over them. And he died with his eyes on the word of God. And then his eyes saw the word made flesh. He had a plan. Do you have a plan? If you don't have a plan, someone else is just going to turn on the TV. Be immovable. Be fixed. And then, Paul says, be abounding. Oh, be abounding. Isaiah 61.3 says you are to be verdant. You are to be, you are to be an oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Because today is not your last day yet. So you keep on. You endure. 
God wants us verdant with life because we are his colony. And Christ calls us to start living the resurrected life now. And because of his resurrection, you can finally become the human God has created you to be. And that's why we're sending out missions teams. And that's why we're doing corner prayer this Wednesday at Garden Hills and Hedge Road. Last week we were at Douglas Park from 6.30 to 7.30. Just praying over our community. And that's why we had last Friday night, there was a revival in this facility, our student summer revival. Oh, listen, nothing you do in the name of Christ is in vain. Your head in a negative 320 degree vat of liquid nitrogen, that's vain. But your head immersed in God's word and your body frail, though it may be living out the life of Jesus, that's not in vain. And that grace, that's the kind of grace that will get you off the couch and into the game. Our destiny is an eternal, immortal, imperishable life on an eternal, immortal, imperishable earth, worshiping and serving the eternal, immortal, imperishable Jesus. God will not let death win. Death is not the last sentence in the Christian's life. It's the next to the last sentence. Jesus is the last sentence. Because death because of him, death is not a wall. It's a turnstile. Amen.